Hello, this is Phil Oakley of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm delighted to have with me today Steve Clapham from Behind the Balance Sheet, but also a freshly published author of The Smart Money Method, How to Pick Stocks Like Hedge Fund Pro, which for me is uh, one of the best books I've ever read on analysis and researching companies, and I'm very, very happy to be having a chat with Steve today. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, Phil. Thank you so much for having me on. That's um, really, really, I mean, your word, your kind words really mean a, mean a lot to me, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I, I wonder what a freshly published author is, though. I mean, I have this sort of vision of myself having been squeezed out between the rollers and being freshly published. But you're, of course, a published author, and is it going to change my life? That's the question. Probably not. But uh, I think, no, I, I, think, the think so. I think the freshly published bit is actually the sort of process you go through when writing a book, and then you're you're glad to get to the end of it. Well, I'll tell you, I, I I thought that the the writing of the book actually I quite enjoyed. It was the marketing of the book before the launch that that I found really really stressful, and the you know your kind words mean so much because. I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but I did all this work to try and promote the book and social media and so on. And then it got to the Tuesday, the 24th of November, and the book was out. And I thought, what happens if people don't like it? Yeah. And I was actually I was actually quite nervous. I thought, oh, dear, because I'd sent it to you know various people to ask them to do reviews. And everyone I sent it to, obviously, I knew. And they said, Oh, it's a really it's a good book. Yeah, you should, you know, people should buy it. I didn't know how much of that was, oh, there are friends of mine. I mean, they're not going to say, oh, Steve, your book's terrible. I would stop the publication. So when you did that um, tweet last Sunday, I was really super excited. I was so excited about that. And it got a huge amount of attention. No, I think you've done a super job. And I hope that lots of people buy your book because I'm, I'm sure that they will, they will get a lot from it. There's just so much in there, which is great in itself. But it's, I think what's so good about it is that you can look at it, you know, and think, oh, yeah, there's loads and loads of stuff. And you and I, you know, have both done this job professionally. And, you know, you can just keep on, keep on researching companies and just keep on and on and on. And in some ways, that's what you have to do when it's your job. But I, but I think that the good thing about the book is that, you know, the, the private investor can dip in and out of it. You know, they can, get the, they can get the framework, the process, and then I think what's good is that they can go to certain bits and say, right, I want to look at this today. How do I do that? And I think, I think the book, book does that pretty well. But um, let's, let's, let's sort of get, in, get into the subject. I mean, it's clear, you know, you're very, very passionate about this subject, and that, that comes across in the book. And I think, you know, research is so important, you know, for an investor when you're, you know, you're investing in individual stocks. The sort of key question that, you know, a lot of our listeners will be will sort of be have, have on their minds and want to ask is, if I, if I have to do one thing when I research a company, what, what is the most important thing for me to do? Horrible question, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, that, that is quite a difficult question. I mean, you know, I could just say buy a stock that's going to go up, um, but uh, th- there isn't one thing. You know, if you just do one thing, 
you're not going to you're not going to get it right. I mean, what I've tried to explain in the book is that the research process is multifaceted, and I'm not um, explaining or asking private investors to do the degree of work I would do, you know, at a large hedge fund about to deploy many millions, tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars in in in, in a specific um, stock. What I've tried to do is explain the methodology that I developed, and then people can pick the bits of it that are relevant to that particular idea. And I make the point early on in the book that I take shortcuts. So, you know, I don't worry particularly about a company's economic moat and its ability to price its product if I'm buying something at discount to book value that's got a huge amount of debt on the balance sheet and it's in a distressed situation, you know, because there what I'm worried about is the downside risk and the survivability and whether or not it's got the ability to put the pricing up. Well, frankly, that's a second order problem. If it gets through the current depressed position and gets out the other side, then it's something I might think about later. So I think what you've got to do is you've got to deploy the suite of tools that I explain in the book and deploy them according to the sort of situation you're looking at. Now, hopefully for many of your listeners, the, the, they'll be buying quality stocks that they're gonna hold for the long term, which is why I spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about quality and talking about economic moats. But obviously there's been lots of books about quality investing. I know you've written a very good one on that. There's lots of people have, have, have talked about that and, you know, by all means, don't take um, my word, word for it. Have a look at some of the other books. But what I've tried to do is I've tried to say, you know, there's all sorts of types of investments. Different people do it in different ways. But here's my approach, which can be applied to a range of different types of stocks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll come on. We'll come on to the bit about quality in, in a second. I think one of the things I'd like to pick you up on is what you, you mentioned about downside risk. And I, I'll be interested in your thoughts about the experience that you have of yourself and other people researching businesses and companies. And do you think in general that investors spend enough time thinking about risk and that they spend too much time looking at, looking at reward? Of course, I mean, you know, it's just human nature, isn't it? That you, you, I mean, first of all, I, I look at it from a slightly different perspective because I was a hedge fund looking at both sides of the balance sheet. So I was looking for longs and I was looking for shorts. So, you know, sometimes you would go looking at something as a long and you would end up saying, oh, you know, the accounting of this stinks. It's really a horrible company and I'm going to go short rather than long. It didn't happen that often. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people go look at something and they're looking to buy a story. And they don't look at the numbers and they don't look at the downside risk. And every investment should start off with a clear understanding of the numbers and a clear understanding of what could go wrong. Because the worst possible situation to find yourself in is you buy something and it goes wrong. And you then think, well, what do I do now? And then, you know, this has happened to me professionally. 
you know, if you're deploying a large amount of capital, by definition, you have to be early. And when you're early, you don't know whether you're a week early, a month early, or a year early. So often what you'll do is you'll be too early and the stock will go against you. And then I have a set process, set procedure that says, okay, I bought this stock at five pounds and I now find it's four pounds. So what do I do? And there's two, there's three things you can do. One is do nothing. Doing nothing is invariably the wrong answer because either you've made a mistake or you're right. And if you're right, you should buy more. And so I have a certain, you know, a tolerance for averaging down up to a risk limit. And sometimes you're wrong and you should get out. So what I like to do is before I get into that situation, I've got a plan. I know what I'm expecting to go wrong and if what I'm expecting to go wrong goes wrong and the stock falls 20%, I know I'm safe to average down and buy more. If it goes down because of something I haven't expected, usually the answer is to sell because I haven't had full information at the start. So thinking about the risks, thinking about what could go wrong is absolutely crucial because it, it gives you the ability to sleep at night when things do go wrong. And this idea of sleeping at night, I think is actually fundamental to investing. Obviously, if you're a professional investor, you're paid to manage other people's money and the lost sleep is part of the, part of the process. And you tend to be able to divorce yourself from the, from the fund. But when it's your own money, when you're a private investor and you're, you're losing money, you're worried, you don't know what to do, well, that's a really bad situation to be in. So what I think you should do is structure your portfolio so that you can always sleep. Because the lost sleep is, is the worst possible thing. Because not only are you losing money, but you're emotionally being troubled. Oh, yeah. So this idea of think about what the risk is at the start is absolutely fundamental to me. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. And I mean, I think, you know, just, just looking at, you know, the basics of, of portfolio performance, you have a stock that blows up on you. And it's very, very difficult to recover from. It can do huge amounts of damage to your portfolio. And on that point, I mean, how much time do you spend looking at a company's history? And in particular, looking at, looking at recession resilience? Because I think, you know, obviously, one of, the, one of the things that's been very striking, certainly for the last decade, is that companies with very stable earnings that don't bounce around a lot have done extremely well. And one of the best ways to find those companies is go back to the last recession and see how they perform. And actually look at how they're doing now in 2020, which is, you know, a fantastic, I know it's, it's been painful for a lot of people, but it's uh, also a fantastic learning opportunity. Yeah. I, I it's an interesting question because, you know, if you think about the period, the 20, the period from the global financial crisis through to 2020, it's a bit like the 1990s, you know, you're the you're upward only markets, no downturns. And, um, you know, in my career, what I've tended to do is I've tended to be quite 
careful about the operational leverage and looking back at last recessions, looking back at the last cycle. But I don't think it's really possible to do that now because most of the data really is only good back to 2001, 2002, most of the data that comes out of the system. So if you're wanting to screen for this, look at it systematically, um, it's difficult to do pre-2001. And the two downturns we've had have been absolutely, I mean, people have been absolutely decimated. So I don't think your performance in the global financial crisis or your performance in COVID-19 is necessarily indicative of the next downturn. Assuming the next downturn's more like the downturns we had in history. I mean, it may be that we're just in a different paradigm where we don't get normal downturns because there's so much money in the system that the, you know, the zombies carry on, they don't go bust. And, and you know, instead, instead of having a normal cycle where you have a recession and a recovery, you have a, a depression, a huge downturn, and then a, a, a huge pickup. And maybe we get another one of those in the next 10 years. And it's not a global financial crisis. It's not COVID, but it'll be something else that we couldn't, we couldn't imagine today. Uh, I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, it, it, that is conceivable. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Trying to understand how a company will behave in a normal downturn is very, very important. But, in, you know, the interesting point, I haven't, I haven't studied this. But I suspect if you look at the stocks that did well in the global financial crisis, they might be quite different from the stocks that did well in this crisis. Okay, you know, Amazon's probably done well throughout, but leaving the tech stocks aside, you know, if you look at Compass, Compass Group's had a pretty tough time by because, you know, serving, serving meals to people at work. Well, they aren't at work. Serving people to, you know, meals to people in... In, in the gym, they're not in the gym. But in the global financial crisis, I haven't looked, but I suspect it was fine. It was very, it was very resilient indeed. So I think understanding the resilience is probably more complicated than we've been used to. And in a way, this is this plays to the idea that knowing your companies well gives you a real help because then when you do get this sort of mad event you can say, actually, you know what, in this environment, I think Compass Group is going to be really, really badly stretched. And I know it's gone down a bit, but actually I should just knock it out. But you do need to, to understand the company well enough to anticipate what the implications of a COVID type crisis will have in the business. And that's not, that's not easy, right? Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, I, I, think, I think we're all learning this year. I think that we found out a lot about, you, know, you think you know a company and you get an event like this. And I, I always find, find that companies are actually a lot more candid in downturns than they are in upturns. And they, they feel that they're so badly battered that, that they tell you things that perhaps they wouldn't tell you at uh, other, other, other more favorable uh, climates. I want to touch on a, on a subject which is, you know, near to my heart and also to yours and, lots of other people. And this is this whole subject of quality companies, quality shares. And, you know, the argument is fairly simple to understand, you know, buying good companies, stick with them, they'll do well. It feels, and I've been think, saying this for a long time, it feels like a very crowded trade now. And 
I think it's, fair, it's, it's fascinating in some ways when we come back to like the subject of research, because if you look at a lot of these big caps, even mega caps that have done so well, and you think, well, hold on a minute. Where, you know, where's the undiscovered information about these companies? And they've just been repriced, a lot of them. They've chugged away and they've repriced. But I think one of the things that fascinates me at the moment on this subject is, you know, again, looking at what what could derail this. And I found it really interesting that you, you mentioned in your book, a really excellent book by um, Jonathan Tepper, the, the Myth of Capitalism. And I, I read this book during lockdown and it was a it was a great read. And it sort of in very simple terms, essentially describes the, the economy and the corporate world now as being dominated by monopolists or quasi-monopolists. And also the other the other side of it is the the sort of diminished power of the worker. So that we get these companies with very high profit margins that don't go back to an average as academics have taught about us. But I just can't help thinking that this is a source of like major risk for these kind of companies, not just from like an antitrust point of view, but also possibly from, from workers demanding higher wages, which means that shareholders get a lower, a lower, you know, a smaller slice of the cake. I'm just wondering what you think about all that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we're overdue a change in the cycle because the, the share of the, the share of profit going to the, going to the capitalist, going to the supplier of capital has increased at the expense of the share going to the worker for quite a long time. And, you know, I believe that these things are cyclical and the power will shift, tilt back to, to the worker. And I, I think it should because, you know, people's lifestyles, you know, they haven't improved. The average guy, the average person in the street hasn't seen, you know, an improvement in their economic um, earnings for decades now. And that, yeah. that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that people like me, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not like one of the really rich people, but, you know, the, the really rich people have taken a much, much greater share of the pie. And people like me have probably done better than the average person. I don't think that's necessarily equitable. I mean, the Jonathan's book, um, I thought was very good. And I, I, I've got a lot of time for, for Jonathan. But it really opened my eyes, but I hadn't thought of it in this way. He makes the point that Buffett invests in monopolies. So he makes the, he uses the example of Moody's. He uses the example of the, the railroads. And I hadn't really thought that that was what Buffett is doing, but he's, he's, he's absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, I think Moody's is a, a, a really bizarre company because it deserved to go out of business after the global financial crisis, since it was almost single-handedly responsible yeah. for, the, for the mess, or maybe not single-handedly. And why, the, the, why they, they haven't opened up the ability to rate um, debt to a wide group of other companies in the United States is beyond me and why, you know, Moody's and Fitch and a couple of others have got a quasi-monopoly in this area is bizarre. But, you know, that is book shows that's repeated across America. Now, what happens to allow that shift from the, the, the providers of capital to the providers of labor? 
I don't know. And you could argue that it won't happen because automation will mean that there's more workers around and, you know, there'll be um, fewer jobs. Um, and therefore, you know, the people that provide the capital will get even more. That is the, the sort of the natural trend. But I think, you know, governments have a role to play in this. This is a societal issue. This isn't, this isn't an investment issue. This is a societal issue. And I think we'll see that uh, President Biden will bring a very different complexion and approach to this subject. Because, it, it, you know, the guy in Main Street America needs to earn more because guess what? He's not done well in the last years and he deserves to do better. He deserves a share of a greater prosperity. It's, it's, it's unfair otherwise. I, I totally, totally agree. Um, I mean, I, I think it, I think it is quite. A, I think you know, it is, it is an investment issue in some respects because you think if this keeps on going on the way it's going, who's who's going to you know who's going to buy the stuff that these companies make? You know, oh, exactly. Or, or, you know, who's who's going to buy more more of the stuff? And it sort of leads you into a into another sort of debate about another area of you know investment analysis, and that's. And that's valuation, and you know, and and also you know the valuation of quality stocks against those that are perceived to be of inferior quality. And when it comes to the sort of the quality stocks, you can just sit back sometimes and just think, people, people are just buying these. You know, they're, they're like saying that valuation doesn't matter. It's like it's almost like it's not considered. And that, that's something that, you know, I've struggled with. It's like you think, okay, I'll just find a good company and, and buy it. And it doesn't, doesn't that, matter. That's exactly, that's exactly what vast swathes of people are doing, particularly in the United States. I had a, a fascinating dialogue on Twitter with one of these guys that does, um, he's got a subscription newsletter. So you subscribe to his newsletter and he'll issue a bunch of stocks. And he was recommending Zoom. And um, I suggested that, you know, maybe he should go in my valuation course. So, you know, I've got an online training school. So I said, look, go on, go on my course because I've got a valuation of Zoom in that course. I think you'll find it quite helpful and quite interesting. And he, he said, no, no, I'm not interested. I said, look, you don't have to pay. You can go for nothing. I just think, you know, it will help you. And he said, no, no, I'm not interested. And um, we had this sort of dialogue with somebody else and going back and forward. And in the end, I said to him, so, you know, what, what, what do you think is the right price for Zoom? Well, that, so I should mention, he ended up having a bet with somebody I know, which is how I got dragged into the conversation. So they had a bet for $1,000 as to whether the value, the, the garbage value retail bombed out, really bombed out piece of rubbish was going to do better than Zoom. And I didn't know, I mean, I hadn't even heard of the bomb diet value retailer, but I was, you know, I, I thought it was quite interesting. Anyway, so I said to him, I said, well, what, what, what price, you know, what do you think, what's your valuation? What do you think the right price for Zoom is? And you know what he said? He said, I don't really look at valuation. I just think that Zoom will be a bigger company in five years time. And that was to me a microcosm of all that's wrong with the US stock market, because you've got these idiots that are clueless and they purport to be experts, right? 
and there's a, a bunch of them. There's one guy who has got, also got a subscription service where he'll give you his stocks. And he's even got an online course about you know, learning to be an investor. Well, what he's doing, pretending to teach people, is beyond me because he's got no knowledge, no understanding, no ability to research a company. And this idea that you just buy good companies and hope for the best, I mean, I, Terry Smith does sometimes say, and I've heard him say that valuation isn't important, you know, that what's important is returns, because if you own the stock for long enough, your, your return as a shareholder will converge with the return that the stock makes, which if you're going to hold a stock for 50 years, that probably works, right? Yeah. But, you know, how many of us are going to own a stock for 50 years? I certainly haven't. And, um, I, you know, I'm not going to be alive in 50 years time. And this idea that valuation doesn't matter, I mean, it's really um, exaggerated because interest rates are zero. Right? And so if you've got no interest rates, you know, time value of money, then the valuation becomes less critical because you, you're discounting very far out cash flows at a much reduced discount rate. And they're therefore worth much more today. But guess what happens if we ever have interest rates again? Now, we may never have interest rates again because the US government probably couldn't afford to pay you the money that's borrowing so much money. If it had to pay interest on it, there would be a real problem. But, you know, we've got inflation coming. The only tool they've got in the toolbox for addressing inflation is interest rates. I, I don't happen to think that in, interest rates are a particularly good tool for com combating inflation. We, that's a separate argument. But if interest rates normalize, these people are going to have a very, very big problem. And it seems to me that foolish to assume that the lowest interest rates for 5,000 years, we should assume will be the norm for the next however many years. Perhaps we should think about it that it may, you know, we may have very low interest rates in the next 10, 20 years, possible. We could even have, instead of going from zero to five, we could even go from zero to minus five. That is clearly a possibility, but we shouldn't fail to factor in the possibility that interest rates could go up. And if interest rates could go up, that will have a very skewed effect on many people's portfolios. And I don't happen to believe that you should run a portfolio that's got that sort of latent risk in it. Now we'll see, I mean, you know, we'll come back in five years time, we'll, we'll be talking about, well, how do we manage with negative interest rates of 5%? I mean, you know, yeah. that could be the way that you transfer the money from the rich to the poor. But guess what? Guess what? The rich have got all their money in the stock market and they'll be, they won't have any money in cash. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the point you make about inflation is a, is a very, very powerful one because it's all very well having, having low interest rates and people say, oh, well, you know, the, the cash flow yield on this is higher than I'm getting on bonds. But if inflation rises, you, you, you're left with a stock that actually has a negative real yield. You know, in terms, I mean, you know, if we actually get back to the basics of investing, you know, what do we invest for? You know, my view is that we invest to grow the buying power of our money so it buys more in the future than it does today. And therefore, you have to beat inflation. As a, as a bare minimum. And I think, you know, the risk for these 
very expensive, good quality companies is that inflation actually looks at the actually pushes the real yield down. But I think, you know, the argument that Terry Smith makes, it's, it's a very easy argument to make with hindsight. You know, and, you know, pick a stock and say, well, if I bought that at 40 times earnings, I'd have still beaten the market. We're not in that position. You and I and everybody listening to this and everybody doing this. We're not in that position. We're looking forward. And, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer that, um, you know, the valuation of a share should ultimately track the performance of the business. I think the problem we've got is that the share prices have run so far ahead of the performance of the business um, but I think the problem for fund managers and particularly um, professional fund managers, if you've not owned these stocks, you've massively underperformed and, and you know, you're in a real, a real problem. But, you know, that we, we could be having the same conversation in five years time as, you, you know, who, who, who knows. But um, one, of, one of the things I also want to move on to, having sort of done the sort of valuation stuff is management and the value of meeting management and it divides opinion i i have to say that i'm probably in the camp of not being a massive fan because i like to make my own view but i do realize that there, there is value in terms of understanding about the business and you talk about this in great length in in, in your book and this one you sort of elaborate on your view about the, the ins and outs of meeting management? Well, I mean, there are various people um, who say you shouldn't meet management. So Nick Kerridge at Schroeder's, the value team, um, uh, he wrote a blog about it. You know, you shouldn't meet management, waste the time, waste your time, waste their time. James Montier at GMO has written about it. He says, you know, many young analysts get seduced by the, the charisma of a Fortune 500, FTSE 100, CEO, because, you know, there's a reason these people rise to the top of these huge organizations. They're good at talking. They're good at presenting themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I completely get that that is a risk that you, you, you know, you get seduced by them. But what I have found to be extremely valuable is to mean, so, you know, you've got a big position in a business. You want to have an ongoing dialogue with the management so that you can understand if they're changing tack on anything. And seeing them every six months or 12 months, what well, depends on the company and so on. But you know, seeing them and noting down what they say, what they said last time and what they've said this time, and understanding is there any change in their attitude? The reason for meeting them is you can see from the body language. You can see when you ask them a question about an area, you can see the things that they feel uncomfortable about. And you then know what to focus on. <laughs> I mean, this is you know, more applicable to a professional analyst, a professional fund, fund manager than the private investor. But I think um, understanding where the story changes is extremely helpful. And Graham Clapp, who used to run a massive 20 plus billion dollar fund at Fidelity and then went off, set up his own hedge fund. He's got a, a file. He's got, I mean, a file. He's got folders of yellow legal pads in which he's taken notes on each company. And when the company comes back, the next time he sees them, he looks back and he says, what did they say last time? 
And he asked them, so last time I saw you, you said that margins in this division were going to be X. And they're not. What, what's gone wrong? And he backs the management that tell them X and deliver X. And, you know, I thought, oh, when he, he explained this to me, I thought, oh, that's actually very sensible. You know, so you're, in a way, you're holding them to account in a, in a small way. And look, I mean, obviously, for most, most of the listeners today, they don't have the opportunity to meet management. But what you can do is you can watch the Capital Markets Day broadcast. You can often read the transcript of the call or even listen to the call. And, and understanding what people are saying and the way they say it, I think is very, very important. Because you want to be invested with people you trust, people with integrity, people who are going to deliver what they say they're, 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 they're going to. And people who have have got a, a, a reward structure that incentivizes them to deliver for you. I'm a great believer in, in, in the incentive system and making sure that people aren't rewarded on earnings per share growth, for example, or yes. not just in earnings per share growth. Unfortunately, most of them are. I mean, it's, uh, I think, you know, just sort of staying on on the subject of, of management and communication from, from the company. Why is it, you think, and this is, this is one of the great sort of themes that you keep going on about in your book, and I, one that I, you know, you're preaching to the converted here. Why don't investors read annual reports? Because for me, they're absolute gold mines and they just get ignored. Why is this? Well, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I haven't maybe told you the story. I didn't tell you the story about I did a, a course for a group of private investors and um, you know when I was starting off trying to you know establish the behind the balance sheet brand with private investors in the UK I thought, well how do I do that so I started speaking at conferences and I, I spoke at a dinner that that had been organized for a small group of investors and um, you know I said to the guys so do the dinner around the corner from my house and I'll, I'll come and speak and I won't charge you. And they then approached me and said, oh, you know, I've, I've got a few of my mates want to do a course. And so I said, okay, we'll do a course. And they kind of beat me down on the price. And um, I thought, well, I've got a couple other people that want a course and I don't have a, a quorum. So I'll just do it because if they have a good experience, they'll tell their friends. And these were influential, you know, guys that are basically full-time investing. And I said to them, we're going to go through the accounts of a company. Can you bring the accounts? Because I, they weren't paying me very much. I didn't want to start printing off accounts and carrying them around. And so I get to the their office where they're holding, because obviously it was cheaper to do it in their office and use my office where I have to rent a meeting room. And I go and get, eventually find this office. And um, I say, okay, well, you know, if you all open the accounts, I'm going to start. And two of them had the, the company release. They thought that was the accounts. Both of these people are full-time investors. They don't have a job. They invest their money. Now, I think one of them's got family business that's been sold. The other one has been a successful investor. I mean, you know, fair, fair enough. You know, if you can, 
if you can successfully invest without looking at accounts, well done. You're, you're doing a brilliant job. When it goes wrong, I don't know what you're going to do, but if, you know, you've obviously, you know, these people have got some luck and when it runs out, they'll be in trouble. But I, I mean, I tell this story um, in my, in my forensic accounting course, which I do for institutional investors. Um, I wrote to David Einhorn, whom I, I know a little bit. And I said, you know, I've been reading your book and his book is about an insurance short that he, that he had. And he explains all the mechanics of why he was short, which was, I mean, intro, incontrovertible. I mean, you know, it was just a pure arithmetic. And I said to him, so what I didn't understand was why did the sell side analyst not say, oh, David Einhorn, the, you know, genius, then genius, brilliant billionaire hedge fund manager, he says he's short because of this and this. Why did they not listen to you, David? And he, he wrote back, he said, um, email me back. He said, Steve, people like stories. They don't want to look at the numbers. And it's so true. It is absolutely true. There's a, an academic study done by William Loughran and another academic at the University of Notre Dame. And they um, looked at how often companies were, accounts were downloaded from the SEC Edgar system, which is the, where the 10Ks are filed in the US. And they discovered that the, the, the accounts were downloaded on the day of publication the following day, only 28 times. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is just bizarre. Right? I mean, PwC did a survey of 450 analysts and one third of the analysts admitted that they didn't use their cams. I mean, one in three. It just, you know, how you can be a professional analyst and not use their cams is a complete mystery to me. It's a mystery to me, but uh, I mean, I've, you know, I've been out of professional investing over 10 years now. But during, during my time, I can tell you that certainly brokers, fund managers, they don't read them. Very few people read them. Uh, and I think, you know, going back again to the sort of central theme of your book and research, this is, for me, a clear source of how an investor, any investor, professional or private, can get an information edge. Read the accounts. You, you, will, know yeah. more, you will know more about a company it might take you, you know, you can, this thing sort of takes time, you know, you, you can learn this over years, but you, I, I'm totally believe, I mean, that's how I do my job. You know, I write articles, you know, and I, I, I read annual reports every week. Oh, good, good on you. I mean, I think it's quite funny because um, the, the fact that people don't read their cans, obviously is great news for us. And um, the, I, I decided that what I would do would be to do uh, an online course on how to read a, how to read a balance sheet and all other parts of the financial statements. And I thought it would be, you know, it would fly out the door, but people, people don't want to learn. You know, I, I mean, that has been a much slower seller than, uh, oh, how to, how to pick stocks and make money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what people want to do. They don't want to, they don't want to learn the basics. They don't want to do the mechanics. And good, because as long as there's lots of people that don't want to do that, and as long as there's lots of institutional investors don't want to do that, 
we'll be we'll be able to find opportunities. I'll be able to train people. It's marvelous. That's good news. It's good news for you. Um, one final thing I'd I'd like to ask you. Um, you've put forward this brilliantly detailed process of research, but I just want to sort of get your thoughts on just looking to the future and just thinking out loud, how do you think the, the job of a research analyst, of an investor and the actual process of research will change, if at all? And what do you thought the kind of things that people will increasingly do that they haven't done? Well, I think the biggest change is the use, the application of technology. So, um, you know, I do this, these forensic accounting courses and now every course I do, not every course, but many of the courses I do, there's a data scientist there. So, you know, one of my, one of my pals has got a $2 billion fund. He's got eight analysts and you've been a really super smart guy. He's just taken on a data scientist. And we were discussing, you know, what can this guy do? And that, that you know, that ability to scrape data and that ability to look at um, information that's available in the net, that is a big um, opportunity in in the market today because not everybody can do it obviously if you're a private client you you can't do it but if you're if you're a smart private client and you happen to be in the in the software business or you happen to be a programmer or you've got a friend that's a programmer i bet you can get access to stuff that we can't get and i think i don't know if i put it in the book um i gave the, the example um in one of the courses of the merger of Ahold and Dalhez. And we used um, the we used a third party to scrape the websites of the two companies and pick out where the stores were and where the warehouses were and put them on a map. So one was in blue, another one was red. And so you could see exactly where the overlap was. And you could then very quickly come up with an idea of where the synergies were. So we could see, for example, that, you know, there, there were two warehouses very, very close to each other. So one of them could just be got rid of. And, you know, those sorts of savings are very, very powerful in, the, in a merger. And it's that's, you know, the classic example of the sort of thing that you can do today that would have taken you, I mean, how long would it have taken you to look up the website and get all the, or you wouldn't have been able to look up the website. You'd have to look up a phone book. I mean, I, I don't even know well, how you, you would have done do it. it in the old days. But, you know, you've now got the internet there and not only do you not need to just go and sit and plot it in a map, you can do it automatically, just, you know, with a snap of your fingers, if you know how to do it. So I think that we'll see much, much more developed um, versions of that. Neil Curry, who I used to work with, was the guy that came up with the idea of using the satellites to track the, the, the stores in the Walmart, the cars in the Walmart car parks. And when he was at, when he was at the, a U.S broker he came up with that idea a really clever idea and you know that satellite imagery i imagine that there's loads of quant funds that are doing just that and you know getting that sort of input and do we do we sort of only have any idea of whether it works what what, what the payoffs you know is, you know the are, are these 
these guys that are doing this, you know, can they can they actually quantify the gains that they're getting? Do you think? Yeah, I I think that the people that are doing it are super sophisticated. So they've got the ability to go back in time. You know, these things only work um, after you've got years, months, quarters of data in which you can analyze, you know, what is the pattern and what's the deviation from the pattern and how has that manifested itself in the results? So, um, you know, those, that would have been very helpful, you know, this year in understanding the, the improvement in performance coming off the depths of COVID because you would have been able to track exactly how many cars were in the car park. And you could have done that daily and you could have watched how the pattern was moving. Um, the, the, the quants firms are very, very sophisticated at this. And I think you know, that what we're gonna see a lot more of is quantumental. So this combination of fundamental investing, old fashioned stuff like you and I do, and the quantitative side with an overlay of using data science. And um, I, I've got clients that are already doing this. So they're, they've got very weird looking portfolios, but they're, they're, they're constructing portfolios that are partly quantitative portfolios and partly fundamental por portfolios. And you know it is a different world, but it is a very successful proven formula for delivering alpha for delivering above market performance. I don't think there's much that you know the private investor can do other than find those really smart people and invest in their funds. Yeah, I mean it's and it, it's fascinating, you know, you know, to actually hear about what what people are doing and I'm sure it's you know it's going to get even more fascinating. Steve, I could talk all afternoon with you about this, but I think keeping it at a sort of Decent length for our listeners. We'll call it a day. It's been super, super talking to you. I wish you every success with the book. And um, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. I hope we will do it again before too long. We can uh, come back and, and, and talk about it a bit more. And I just remind people that the book is called The Smart Money Method, How to Pick Stocks Like a Hedge Fund Pro. Please buy it, like it leave a review on Amazon as Phil, you so kindly did. Thank you very much. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Steve Clapham and my website behindthebalancesheet.com. If you sign up there, there's loads of free resources. So we've got a library with 1500 articles, some free training material, as well as the paid for courses. Phil, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 